Here we are once again. It's like we never left. Welcome to Caught Looking, Sinkhole's limited run podcast on all things baseball. I'm Eric Firstman, editor of Sinkhole. I'm here with Andrew Forbes, our in-house baseball expert. Hello. That's actually, yeah. Hey, Andrew. That's actually literal. He's he's in the house for the past three or four days now, thanks to the weather up in Peterborough. Um and we, we keep watching baseball anyway, so that's what we want. So yeah. we've got some interesting stuff to talk about today, but I think we ought to start with Ichiro since that's what your column is about. So how's he doing so far the, the first couple of weeks of the season? Uh, he's off to a slow start. <laughs> Though I will, I will note, uh, historically, uh, across his career, the first month of the season is his worst season, if you break it down by month. Uh, he's squeaked out six hits so far in about, I think it's 28 or 29 at-bats. Uh, he's hitting a, a robust 207, so just above the Mendoza line. Uh, he has not taken a walk yet, but Ichiro has been known across his career for not being a guy who takes bases on balls. He has scored three runs, and I will say so far the highlight of the season has been uh, a defensive play that he made. He was playing left field as he has all year. In Seattle, it looked like a beautiful Saturday afternoon, the first Saturday of the season. They were playing Cleveland. Jose Ramirez of Cleveland hit the ball deep to left, and Ichiro despite his 44 years on this earth, climbed the wall and left and took a sure home run away from Ramirez. And that made me stand and cheer. That made it all seem like maybe it was going to be okay. It was a beautiful play. And, and actually, even more surprising to me than that play was is the fact, excuse me, is the fact that Seattle has a winning record right now. They're doing well. What are they like? I want to say they're like nine and five or something at this point. Yeah, they're eight and five at the moment. I think yeah. they play, they do play tonight. Okay. They're playing Houston. Tonight. Ichiro won't. <laughs> They're playing Keuchel. So, it, so far, Ichiro hasn't seen any starts against left-handed pitching. Hmm. He's been platooned with uh, Guillermo Heredia, who will take the who will take left field over for Ichiro when the Mariners uh, face a lefty. So that was the case, I think, yesterday, and that is the case tonight. So he won't get chances are any at bats tonight. But that game kicks off in an hour or so, and if I'm still awake, I'll be watching that one too. Okay, so let's talk about let's talk about Otani. Um, okay, Otani is the latest in a decades-long string of Japanese players who have come over to the states with this sort of weird mixture of extremely high expectations and also just a sort of coterie of skeptics. So I'm curious, I kind of want to hear your take about this sort of mixed reaction that Japanese players always seem to get. Yeah, I think I think part of it has to do with the fact that for so many years it just didn't happen. It was as though Japanese baseball was hermetically sealed and players did not come out. There was an exception way back in the early 60s, a pitcher named Masanori Murakami, who was the first Japanese-born player to make the jump across the Pacific and play in Major League Baseball. But that was kind of a funny case in that he was sent over to the United States by the Nankai Hawks um, to get some seasoning and to play in the San Francisco Giants minor league system. He played in Fresno. The Giants liked what they saw enough that they held on to him and they began to use him as a relief pitcher in 1964. Nankai was under the impression that the whole thing had been a kind of limited 
engagement and that he was just going to take a little bit of training and then come back and play for the Hawks in Japan. The Giants didn't necessarily see it that way. There was a bit of a, a, a fractious situation, I think, and eventually uh, Murakami did wink his way back. Never played again in Major League Baseball. Finished out his career. I think he played for Hanshin and then he played for uh, Hokkaido, I think, and and never really duplicated the success that he'd had earlier in his career. But after that, you have a three decades of of nothing but crickets mm-hmm. and tumbleweed. No Japanese players coming across until. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of this has to do with a kind of mutual distrust on the part of Major League Baseball and the NPB, the Japanese professional baseball. Um, and also, I think that in Japan, the sense was that it was their game, the Japanese version of baseball. And to allow players to start to go to the United States to play baseball would result in an exodus. And that they just wouldn't be able to cork the bottle, in a sense. That's borne out, I think, when you look at the experience of Hideo Nomo, who pitched brilliantly for the Dodgers in 1995 and for several years thereafter. In order to get to the United States to play professional baseball, Nomo had to, um, with his, his agent and a lawyer, navigate their way through a very, very complicated legal uh, or, or, or system of rules and the only way for him to break free of a contract and to make the jump from Japan to the United States was to voluntarily retire <laughs> from his contract in Japan and then come out of retirement in a sense to sign with the Dodgers. That and a, a similar protracted battle by a, a pitcher named uh, Hideki Irabu, who eventually wound up with the Yankees a few years later, um, led to the establishment of what they call the posting system, where a team... Uh, in negotiation with a player in Japan can make a player available to the American teams through a system whereby the American teams line up to pay a posting fee. They submit a bid for this fee. That money goes to the Japanese team and then the player is free within a prescribed window to negotiate with the Major League Baseball team. But uh, And that was the system that was in place when Ichiro negotiated uh, with, uh, got permission from his team in Japan, the Oryx Blue Wave, to negotiate with American teams and wound up signing with the uh, Mariners to play in 2001. Ichiro, when he did that, though, he was the first position player, which uh, I think contributed to the doubt that faced him. You can throw all the terms you want uh, and be as delicate as you wish about talking about why people would doubt players coming from Japan. There are seriously, you know, there are, there are very real differences between Jap- Japanese baseball and American baseball. Things that people hold on to when they're voicing their uh, their doubt about the abilities of Japanese players. And it is true that the season is shorter in Japan. It is true that the ball is smaller and harder. It is true that the fences at the, the stadiums tend to be shorter, which would favor a, a hitter, which doesn't if you're, if you're really breaking this down logically. Does not leave a lot of logical room for the success that Japanese pitchers have had in America, but that's a whole other story. But I think that there really is no way around the fact that a lot of the doubt that Japanese players face, including Ichiro, when they come to play in Major League Baseball, has to do with the fact that a Japanese baseball player does not look like what you think of if you are a dyed-in-the-wool, old boys club, American ball fan. I think that there is a very real strain of xenophobia beneath all of the claims of, well, the games are just different. 
That's certainly what Ichiro faced. I think that is in part what Shohei Otani faced. He went through the posting system over this past winter. It seemed as though every team in baseball lined up to submit a bid. Everybody was interested in this guy. The reasons for which I think we can get to in a minute or two. Um, But the fact is that the Los Angeles Angels, they're no longer the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, I don't think. The Los Angeles Angels won the right to negotiate, signed Otani to a contract. He came over, started off in their spring training camp in February, and proceeded to not do very well at all. And it didn't take long for Otani's doubters to say, well, maybe this is another example of a Japanese player who isn't going to cut it in the bigs. Mm. Um, but what? two and a half, almost three weeks into the season now, and uh, Otani seems to be having the last laugh. Yeah. I, I Actually, before we get into the numbers, I want to go back to something you said and, and something which was really appealing to me just about the column generally, which is that baseball in certain important ways sort of stands in or is a is a a bellwether for the country writ large right so i can see mm-hmm. especially the way you described it in your column sort of two big american uh, ideas uh, the tension between the two playing out right so the first is the xenophobia that you mentioned you could also call it racism you could also call it ethno-nationalism. Um, but that idea, that strain has been present in the country, obviously, since before its founding, since before you know the Declaration of Independence. Um, but also baked into the country's constitution is this idea that, quote, you know, all men are created equal. And it's a country that prides itself on being a pluralist. It's a country that prides itself on being multicultural. Um, and it's only been sort of in the past, I would say, two years that this tension has resurfaced in our national politics in a sort of really intense way. It's always been there, but I think with the rise of, I'll just say, with, with the sort of campaign of President Trump, when he was campaigning for president and some of the, the xenophobic things he was saying, this tension has bubbled up again. And, and I think you capture it. I'm rambling here, but I think you captured it really well in this column. You didn't reference it explicitly, but you referenced it enough for that idea to sort of be planted in the reader's head. Right. So, and I, and I think that this is something that we are going to do going forward with this column is just sort of explore the ways in which baseball intersects with larger American trends. It's inescapable. I mean, we just... Was there a know, question Baseball there? on... <laughs> <laughs> it was a, more of a launching pad, more mm. of a, uh, an open field for me to run around in, I think. Um, the, the lie that America sometimes tells itself is that we don't see the color of your skin, you know, in the case of baseball, as long as you perform on the diamond. But I think that the the trenchant doubt and opposition that a, a foreign-born player faces, especially, you know, someone who represents a group of people that haven't been represented in great numbers on the baseball diamond, suggests that baseball is behind the curve on this one or, or reflects something 
still again reflects something broader in American society. Um, when I think about Ichiro now, and I think about Japanese-born players and other Asian-born players, or you know, a handful of Korean players now, it seems like it's only a matter of time before you have a, an influx of Chinese talent into baseball. I think about the way that we were surprised by, and then we celebrated the success of Jeremy Lin, the point guard who came up with. Uh, who broke through with the New York Knicks after having been a bench player for two or three other NBA teams, I want to say. The, the particulars of the story are kind of eluding me at this point because I think that was back in 2012. Um, yeah, there was the, uh, the middle of Lynn Sanity. I remember this. Lynn Sanity. Yeah, summer. and I want to say it was this. I want to say it was the 2012 season, where in the the trough of, of another. Uh, long and frustrating Knicks campaign. And I can say this as a Knicks fan. Um, all of a sudden there was this bright light and, and Jeremy Lin was scoring 30, 35 points a night. There was a, there was a, uh, uh, a game on Valentine's day in Toronto where he hit, uh, you know, a, a dagger to break the hearts of, of the Raptors and the home crowd. And yet he had also won that same crowd over in a city as, as culturally diverse as Toronto. It, it kind of struck a chord. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is why Jeremy Lin took anybody by surprise. And I think that the obvious answer to that is that wherever he went, he did not look even to hardened, seasoned basketball people who should have known better. He did not look like somebody who could play that way to them. He did not fit the role, fit the, the, the visual archetype of an NBA point guard, of an NBA player. And so he was allowed to languish on benches until kind of a fluke combination of injuries led to him having a shot by default and him taking, you know, taking the reins there and, and showing the world. And it, admittedly, it was brief. You know, Jeremy Lin has regressed to the mean in terms of his abilities. And I know he's, he's out with injury this year for the Brooklyn Nets, but... For a time there, he had flashes of brilliance, and and the question had to be: Why did it take so long to anyone see, for anyone to see that he was capable of this? And I think the answer is the same. It's got the same germ as people who would look at a player who was born in Japan and say, "There's no way that guy could be a real ball player." Yeah, and and, and to me, another another interesting thing, another thought that I had while I was reading your column is why every time. Why is it that every time we have a player transfer from the uh, NPB to the MLB, do we judge Japanese ball players writ large? You know, right? Yeah. Why? Because it's been I, happening for for decades, and we do yeah. the pattern repeats itself every single time. You're right, and I think the phrase I use in the in the piece is it's like a one man plebiscite. Yes. Somehow, this one player is going to weigh the soul of Japanese baseball and find it either adequate or wanting. Right? Um, you know, I, we don't do that with people from the Dominican Republic. We don't even do that with people from Canada. You know, in in, in Major League Baseball or or really anywhere else at this point, there seems to be a lingering suspicion that it just isn't the quality of baseball. Despite the fact, let's say, you know. Uh, I know that the World Baseball Classic, which is the, you know, every four-year international tournament that Major League Baseball essentially kickstarted, started um, 
and which has, you know, suffered from a lack of interest in, in, in some places, especially the United States, and which you can argue does not always get the best teams from the from uh, from the United States. But the Japanese national team won the first two in what was it two thousand. I want to say 2009, 2013, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what else they need to do to prove themselves on a world stage as as a source of legitimate uh, world-class baseball talent. But there is a, a lingering resistance to, to to believing in that, it seems, from, from uh, I don't want to say from John Q. Public, but from a sizable portion of the baseball-watching populace, I think. Okay, so let's talk about let's go back to Otani. Let's talk about his numbers. Yeah. Let's talk about his numbers. So Otani won his first start against Oakland. His second start also happened to be against Oakland, and he took a perfect game into the seventh inning. Um, on the days when he has been allowed to hit, usually that's as a DH. He's also played some in the, uh, some in the outfield, but he uh, has. He's hit well. He hit three home runs in three games. Uh, he's doubled. He's tripled. He does not look in any way intimidated at the plate a lot, the way a lot of people thought he might, the way that his spring training performance suggested he might be. He took the very first pitch that he saw and drove it into the outfield for a single. So there are a lot of reasons to suspect that he won't keep this up, but in the short term, it's very exciting and very interesting to watch. <laughs> and and what's got you know baseball history geeks really excited is that if he's able to do both these things at a high level, he'll be the first person to maintain that going back literally a century to Babe Ruth. There have been some very competent hitters uh, who were pitchers, but usually what happens is everything gets sorted. If you're a good enough hitter, they don't want to miss your bat for for all the days when you would be pitching. So they, they, they stream you into, you know, you become an outfielder or or you're a good enough pitcher that they they feel as though they can forego your bat. And if, if the, the skeptic in me, the cynic in me says that the brain trust in Los Angeles will eventually determine, based on whatever advanced numbers they're using, that he is more valuable as a pitcher or a hitter and they will limit his exposure on the other side of the ball. That's what the cynic in me says. But for the time being, they seem content to give him a day or two off on either side of a pitching start, but otherwise to let him hit, which is fun. It's been great to watch. Okay, so we've been talking for a while. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I totally forgot to do our favorite noise. It got really into the conversation. Uh, Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. And uh, for those of you listening, thank you for listening. We will be back probably in, I don't know, two weeks, maybe three weeks, um, whenever the next column comes out. Can we get a little preview? Do you know what you're going to write about next? No, this time I don't. I had the Otani thing in my pocket. I'm not sure. We're going to see what happens with HRO, I think, over the next few days before I, I come into the next subject. Okay, so cool. It'll be, it, for, for the time being, it's a mystery to all of yeah, us. Yeah, maybe I can um, um, get you to write about the Cubs a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know what? This is, it's a part of all this.